Good morning. Uh, my name is Ben Robertson, for those of you um, who I don't know. And uh, I'm going to be continuing our series that we started last week on the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Um, it's on page 9 in your pew Bibles, if you have those in front of you. Uh, a little disclaimer. Those of you who were here four years ago when I was preaching on a parents' weekend, um, I actually preached a sermon on this very text. It just happens to be the, the, the week that you all needed me to step in and preach, and Brandon asked me a couple weeks ago, he said, you know, can you preach that passage? And I thought, well, I preached that exact text four years ago. I'll just rework it, rework the sermon. And then I actually went back and read the text again, and it was completely unchanged, uh, word for word, exactly the same as four years ago. So I thought, you know, it's the strangest thing. We're in the gospel according to Abraham. Book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 12. As we saw last week, God has called Abraham and given him promises. A little interpretive clue for understanding the book of Genesis is this. It was written by Moses, as most of you probably know. And he was writing to the Israelites after they had been rescued from Egypt miraculously by God. And they're wandering in the wilderness and they're in this difficulty, sort of wondering, oh, is the wilderness really better than Egypt? At least there we had some bread and we didn't have to live by faith. And they're struggling. They're wondering if maybe they should go back. And Moses tells them a story of their father Abraham, the backstory here, that so interestingly mirrors their own story, as you'll see. So Genesis chapter 12, and we're starting at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a, a, are, are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, because, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life might be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is, she is my sister? so that I took her for my wife. Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your good word, your word that does not change, because you do not change. And Lord, we come to you now, the unchanging God, and we ask you to move by your Spirit. Would you open up our hearts, open up our ears, and transform our minds that we might know you and see you are right? We ask this in your name and your name alone. Amen. Shortly after college, I had a friend who was engaged. And he was in love with his fiancée, as you would expect. Um, but he had this one problem, and he came to me and a couple of other friends and asked us to pray for him. He said that whenever I hear of, this was even before the age of Facebook, it's much worse now. Whenever I hear my ex-girlfriend from high school, 
Um, I feel this little tug. He said he described it like a fish hook that's caught onto your shirt, sort of pulling you back and you're walking in the other direction. He said the irony of it was that it wasn't that great of a relationship in high school. You know, they dated for, you know, six, nine months, something like that, which is a long time, I guess, at that age. Uh, they went to the prom. He stepped on her feet. You know, uh, it was awkward. It, it wasn't a great relationship. And yet there was just this little tug that he felt, this little inkling of, for some reason, in a small way, wanting to go back, of being pulled away. And he said, you know, what do I do? Um, I told him, stop listening to John Cougar Mellencamp. Um, hold on to 16 as long as you can. That's some of the worst advice ever given in, in lyric. Um, no, I didn't really tell him that. I didn't know what to say. Um, uh, other than, think about the future. <laughs> and he said, eventually, you know, a couple of weeks later, we were meeting together to pray again, and he said, it's, it's gone. And his remedy, his, his secret solution, was to just start thinking about his fiance. Uh, she was wonderful. She was beautiful. They were both Christians. She was a very mature uh, person who loved the Lord. It was a great encouragement to him. He started looking to her, his future wife, and that's how he was able to get over it and move forward. Where the Israelites were in a similar situation. They were out in the, in the, in the wilderness with their new husband, the Lord, who rescued them and saved them from Egypt. And yet, some of the people were saying, hey, let's go back. It was better back there, getting our toes stepped on awkwardly by the ex-girlfriend. And Moses gives them something in this story to help them move forward. And we're just like them, aren't we? I mean, we weren't brought out of Egypt. We weren't in literal slavery. And yet we've been freed from the slavery of sin by Jesus. And we've been brought into his kingdom, out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light and called to live out that kingdom and pursue that kingdom and further that kingdom. And yet there are times where we want to go back to our old ways, whether it's to give up this mission of the kingdom and just live for ourselves, or whether it's to go back to overtly old, sinful ways that we are supposed to be putting behind us. Moses gives the Israelites and us something to help us. There are three things. I'll go ahead and tell you the three points. First thing, God's presence. Second, God's protection. And third, God's provision. And we'll look at those. First, God's presence. Um, God doesn't make his presence known very much in this passage. Just one time he appears in verse 17. We'll talk more about Abram's uh, brilliant scheme in a moment. Verse 17, he's, he's pulled off this uh, trick on Pharaoh, handed over his wife. In verse 17, but the Lord, the Lord, the Lord shows up. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Or literally, plagued Pharaoh with plagues. That would ring uh, a bell for the Israelites. Sound familiar? Sound like their life? But he shows up in this verse. We also know at the beginning, at verse 10, that God is with Abram. Why do we know that? Because of last week. The passage that we looked at last week. I won't read the whole thing, but the initial promise that God gives to Abram in 12, 1 through 3, God repeats to him over and over, I will bless you. I will make nations come from you. I will be with you. He says the phrase, I will, five times in three verses. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. I'm with you, Abram. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I am there. And yet, and Abram obeys. Last week, he enters into the promised land. 
Within the moment things become difficult, a famine arises, he immediately leaves. Now, you can understand, he was hungry, had to leave. Commentators differ on whether or not Abram was actually being disobedient to the promises of God at that moment, but nonetheless, he leaves, and he goes to Egypt, just like his descendants would do in the future when a famine comes to the land. And he immediately forgets that God is with him. Uh, several years ago when I was in seminary, uh, my brother, my older brother Steve, was also in seminary um, at, at the same time. And one weekend we went camping. At the time he had, well, he still has three children. And his oldest son, Joseph, was about five or six years old. And we were camping at this place in Missouri called the Big River, which I like to call the Medium Creek. Um, it's sort of a misnomer. It's not that big. And Joseph and I were swimming in the creek, swimming, wading in the creek, and I was carrying Joseph across. There was a bank, and there was a point to where the water got slightly above my waist, but I was holding him and kind of cradling him in the water, and at the deepest point of the creek or river, you could feel this gentle current. Because it, it is a river, it's not, it's not a lake, so there's a current. And as I was carrying Joseph across, we were, we were, he was doing just fine, he wasn't the strongest swimmer, but we got to the middle, and he was facing out in front of me, we're crossing the creek, and as he feels that current just gently push his body, he starts to flail his arms and freak out and kick and scream and wiggle. And I kind of got a hold of him. I didn't think to speak. And then finally I said, Joseph, what are you doing? Like, just calm, just calm down. And he looked over his shoulder and he said, oh, I thought you'd left. <laughs> like, like <laughs> he just, in the, as he felt the current, somehow he just couldn't feel my hands anymore, I guess, and thought I was gone. The irony of the moment, in the he was completely fine the whole time. I was right there with him. I had him. I'm, I'm a strong swimmer. Um, in his act, his instinctive act of self-protection, the flailing that he experienced, he was actually jeopardizing himself. It was actually the, the the one thing that could happen is he might, you know, what if he knocked me unconscious? You know, of course that wouldn't happen. I had him the whole time, in spite of his flailing. But his flailing, his instinctive act of I'm going to protect myself, was only making the situation. Worse, and of course, I was with him the whole time. Let me ask you this: When you're tempted to go back to the old ways, whether it's some lingering old sin that you want to return to, how would it change in that moment if you knew that God was right there with you as you felt the current begin to catch you? To know that He's holding you, to know that He has you, and He's a strong swimmer, and He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you go no matter what. And God reminds Abram. Abram is handed over his wife, flailing his arms. And then God shows up in verse 17. I'm here. I'm here. This is hard. But you're not alone. What if in that moment where you want to turn back and you don't want to pursue the kingdom of, of, of light that, that God has called you into if you're a believer? In that moment where you're having that conversation with your friend or your neighbor and they're asking you something about your faith and you kind of feel like it's up to you and you think, I've got to say the most important thing and I've got to really win him over in this moment. What if you knew that God is holding you? He's with you. You're not in that conversation alone. It would change everything. It would change everything. But if God were merely with us, if he were merely present but then didn't do anything, if I were with Joseph and then decided to drop him, um, that wouldn't be great. But not only does God give us his presence, he also gives us his protection. His protection. Let's look at verse 12. They're going into Egypt, Abram with his beautiful wife. And Abram says this to her. The Egyptians will see you, and they will say, this is his wife. 
and they will kill me. They will kill me. But they'll let you live. Abraham is not paranoid. That could very likely happen. You're going into another person's kingdom. The pharaoh and the, or the king could see any woman that he wanted, and he could say, she's mine, and if she's attached to someone else, too bad for them, we have a solution for that, off with his head. That was a very real threat. He wasn't just imagining this idea. He had a real enemy. God protects from enemies. He protects from the enemy on the outside. A real um, external threat. There's a man named uh, Dr. Brand who, who initially went to study leprosy. And he entered into this leper, leper colony in a third world country to study what was going on with lepers. And what he eventually discovered was the issue with leprosy or modern day leprosy was not so much the condition itself, but that it removed all sensation of pain. And the interesting thing he discovered is that the, the sensation of pain actually protects us from external dangers. I, the, the description I read of this uh, is far too graphic for me to include here, but needless to say, in this third world setting, uh, critters and creatures could attack people at night, and they wouldn't feel it and wake up. And so they would come to the doctor the next day with wounds and marks from bites and say, look what leprosy did. And he eventually figured out, oh, here's what's going on. They don't have the sensation of pain, and so they aren't protected from these external enemies, these external attacks. They needed protection. Well, here God, in spite of Abraham, he protects him first from a famine by giving him a place to go. And second, he does, attack, he, he does protect him um, in spite of his little plan. Let me ask you, who are your enemies? I mean... I seriously doubt that there may be someone who's interested in your wife, but they probably aren't planning to kill you in order to get her. That's probably not your situation. Um, there's probably not a neighbor across the street who's got this malicious plan to take you down. Um, however, though we have had former CIA agents uh, working uh, attending this church, so in their case, it could happen. But who are your enemies in your everyday life? Um, could be the guy running against you for president of HOA, running a smear campaign throughout the neighborhood, um, or it's just someone gossiping about you and you heard about it. They're slandering your character and saying negative things about you. Um, could be that just that coworker who you may you may have never used the word enemy. Man, he's definitely not my friend. Maybe it's your spouse. Marriage is hard. There are times where you and your spouse may be antagonistic and against each other, and you may look at him and say, he is my enemy. Hardly a husband or a family feud that goes back for years. Who are your enemies? And what is it that you think that they can take from you? How would it change how you treat them and your ability to then love them, demonstrate the gospel, and lovingly speak the gospel of grace into their life if you knew God's going to protect you. It doesn't necessarily mean you're 100% right in the situation and he's on your side because you're right. But that he's going to protect you. That he has you covered. That he is not going to let them take whatever it is away from you that you think that they can take. Your reputation, your sense of well-being, 
ultimately he's with you and they won't have the upper hand. But even more than that, God protects Abram from these external enemies on the outside. We see something so profound here. Pharaoh is Abram's enemy, but Abram's worst enemy in this passage is himself. Not just the enemy on the outside, but the enemy within. Verse 13. Again, they will kill me. They will let you live. So, say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, that my life might be spared for your sake. Who says chivalry's dead, right? Husband of the year. Awesome. Father Abraham. So then he carries out the plan. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was beautiful. He was right. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Later, when Pharaoh finds out what happened, he comes back to him and says, Why did you lie to me so that I took her for my wife? You really have to enter this. You see what he just did. You want to elect him president? You want to be your governor? You want to be in the HOA? You want to be an elder at your church? You want him to be your dad? Paul says, if we are children of faith, we are Abraham's offspring. This is your spiritual father. You're a believer in Christ. This is your spiritual heritage. I don't want to die. Why don't you go on in with him? Unthinkable. Really. It's awful. But even more than that, that's on the, on just the personal level, great dad. But on the macro level, God has just promised him, Abraham, you are going to be the father of many nations. I'm going to bless the whole world through you and I'm going to give you offspring. Abraham, you're the patriarch. Well, Abraham, the patriarch, then takes Sarah, the matriarch, and hands her over to another man to be his wife. Remember what was supposed to happen through their offspring? The whole world was going to be blessed. The fate of the world, not just his own life, the fate of the world holds in the balance. And Abraham says, why don't you go with him? Unthinkable. Awful. He's his own worst enemy. Dr. Brand, as he studied the lepers, he continued to see these problems of critters attacking in the night, but he tells one story of seeing a man in the, in the village. There were potatoes roasting on hot coals. And when the potatoes were done, he reached into the fire, picked them up, could not feel pain, walked over to where the food was being served, and set it down. Next day, guess who showed up at the doctor's office? Look what leprosy did to my hand. Look at these blisters. He was his own worst enemy. He put his own hands into fire. And he didn't even know it. He was injuring himself without even realizing it. Do you know that you're your own worst enemy? It's not the coworker who's antagonizing you that's generating all of that hateful thought that you have towards him. I mean, he's a problem. Don't get me wrong. And it requires patience. But it's actually our own hearts. It's us. Not our circumstances. Not other people. 
Do you know that you're your own worst enemy? There's a good chance that you are and don't even know it. So I sort of have you in a catch-22 now. If you know you're your own worst enemy, then you are. And if you don't know, well, that's a great indication that you are, in fact, your own worst enemy. You are your own worst enemy. We wouldn't have voted for Abram. We wouldn't have made him our father. Yet God chose him. And Moses chooses this story to highlight to his people. I'll tell you another quick story. I was a a youth pastor, a youth director in South Georgia in a small town before I went to seminary. And uh, little, un, unbeknownst to most of the Christian community of which it was it was massive in that town, uh, that town was also known to be a what's called a gay haven. So there was a tremendous, uh, tremendous, a, a large uh, gay and lesbian community that sort of lived underground, um, not literally underground. Um, in the town, and a, a community of them had actually started to work at, at, for whatever reason, we didn't have a lot of restaurants, but we did have Ruby Tuesday. And a, a lot of the servers and workers there um, were, were gay and lesbian. And um, they were unchurched. They didn't, they didn't know the Bible. They had no experience with it. But the owner of Ruby Tuesdays was a Christian. And so they would have conversations, and he was their employer, and they would get talking, and he said, um, they said, you know, we would like to just do a Bible study with you. Could we do that? And he said, yeah, absolutely, of course. So after work, they would stay in Ruby Tuesdays after everyone left and talk about the Bible. And what they decided is, we just want to, we don't know anything, so we just want to start at the beginning and read. So he said, okay, for next week, you guys get a Bible, start reading, get as far as you want, and then we'll just get together and we'll talk about it. So they all started reading through Genesis. You know what he said? They said, after reading through the first several chapters of Genesis, this is only on page nine, so they probably got this far. He said, the people in this book are awful. <laughs> These people are bad. You know, we had no idea that the Bible was so full of these messed up people. What is this? I want to ask you a question. Why didn't they know that? I mean, this was South Georgia. You think there are a lot of churches in Williamsburg. And we were like almost Florida. So it's like... It's the Bible Belt. It's the it's the buckle of the Bible Belt. There are almost more steeples than people in this town, which meant that they lived next door to and in the midst of professing Christians all around them. And the story that they were just watching in other people's lives is the Bible must just be full of perfect people who never did anything wrong. The story of the Bible is one good character after another that we are supposed to live like and be good and be wonderful. Why didn't they know? Because the Christians, of whom I was one, living all around them, rather than saying, look at the blisters on my hands, we put our hands in our pockets and said, I'm doing just fine. I pretty much got it together. Yeah, nobody's perfect, right? (laughs) But I'm doing okay. Rather than saying, look at my scars. Look at what I did just the other day that Jesus is saving me from. Did you know that part of the gospel, a huge part of the gospel is your sin that God saved you from? Not just his protection from the enemies out there, but look at how God is protecting me from me. Look at what is wrong with me, and yet Jesus loves me anyway. Yet God saved Abram anyway. 
Last point. God's provision. He's there. To, he's with you. He's present. He's protecting, but He's also providing. Verse 20. It says, Pharaoh gave the men orders concerning him. After you know the jig is up, he's found out Abram's brilliant plan. It says, they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. All that he had. Now look back at verse 16. What did he, what did he have? Um, he had, halfway through verse 16, he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Um, I love how uh, Moses chooses to repeat, not just donkeys, but you need to understand male and female donkeys. They're both. Um, what's the point that he's making in listing out the various types of cattle and servants that he's gotten? The point is, he's rich. Cattle was, was the measure of wealth in this ancient world, especially for a nomad like Abraham. He just racked up. And remember, how did he come into Egypt? Starving to death. A famine. Nothing. And then he walks out rich. Remember, if you're an Israelite, this would kind of sound familiar. Hey, our family first came here because we were starving in the middle of a famine. And then the Pharaoh persecuted us. And then the God that we serve and love, called Yahweh, plagued Pharaoh with plagues. And then the Egyptians loaded us down with stuff and sent us back out. Moses says, guess what? That happened to our father Abraham too. The exact same story played out again. Many of you know I'm an Alabama football fan. I grew up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Alabama is currently the um, champion of the world in college football. Um, we say national champs, but really are there other nations with uh, football teams, college football teams? The national champions of the world uh, at football. Um, but, uh, the last time we won a national championship was, uh, 1992. And at that time we had a player, his name is David Palmer. He was one of my favorite players to watch. And I loved, uh, watching David Palmer because he was a receiver. He returned punts. And sometimes we put him at quarterback just to try it and see what happened. Um, but he was at his best, um, when something went wrong. Because he was so fast and so quick. And, and could just think on his feet. He was just this agile athlete, kind of small, but just could move like lightning. And he was at, it, at his best when something went wrong in what's called a busted play. Someone misses their assignment. There's a blitz. We didn't expect it. Give the ball to David, and he's gone. In the middle of everything going wrong, oh, no, oh, they're rushing in. We're going to get sacked. And suddenly David Palmer is loose and running 80 yards down the field. In the midst of this worst moment, the busted play, David provides. He shows up. David Palmer, the deuce is loose, they used to say. He's number two. Let me ask you this. What's your busted play? What a busted play Abraham got himself into. I'm going to hand my wife over to Pharaoh. That seems like a good plan. God blesses him. He comes in starving to death and he leaves rich in spite of this, this horrible idea of what he's done. What's your busted play? It may be a personality trait about yourself that you don't like. I talk too much. I can never seem to shut up. Um, maybe it's your job, and you just wish you could get out of it. Or you just wish you could find one. And you're thinking, how is God going to work in this for his kingdom? 
Or maybe you're at the point in your life and you're just like, you know, I thought I was going to grow more spiritually by now than I have, and I just feel like a spiritual second grader. What's wrong with me? How is God going to use this? How could God use me? Maybe you just thought, I, I knew I would be married by now. And I'm not. Or maybe you think, I wish I weren't married right now. I am. How is God going to use this mess that we've made? It's in those moments, in those busted plays where God really shows up. We wouldn't have known how great David Palmer is if there had never been a busted play. But it's in those moments where you've blown it, where everything's gone wrong, and then God shows up and works wonders. Not because of you, but in spite of you. That His grace is put on display. His power to provide is highlighted that much more. And maybe you're one of those people who just, you're not putting your hands in your pockets. You're just holding them out and looking down at them. And you're looking down at those blistered hands and saying, God could never use this. Want to bet? God uses busted plays. Thank God He does. His grace is greater than all our sin. We'll put this thing in just a moment. And it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Because this is how God works. The greatest busted play in the history of the world is Jesus on the cross. The worst event in human history. The most nonsensical, Paul actually calls it foolishness. Really? I mean this respectfully. A mutilated, naked Jewish man on a cross? God says yes. That's how I'm going to save the world. You want to know that I'm present? I'm going to become a man and die for you. That's how much solidarity I have with you. I'm going to die in your place to protect you, to keep you safe from your sin, to give you forgiveness, but also to ultimately free you from death. Through the cross comes resurrection, and that is his provision. Through, through the bloody sacrifice of Jesus comes the resurrection, forgiveness of sin, hope for life. Ever after, the true promised land is accomplished through that. And that's what the story of the gospel looks like in each of our lives, in each of those moments where God puts His grace on display because that is how He loves to work, because His grace is greater than your sin. Let's praise Him for it and pray with Him. Lord Jesus, thank You that You are a good and loving and kind God and that You condescend to us. You come down in the midst of our brokenness, ruined lives. Oh, Lord, you save and you redeem. We thank you that your grace abounds and overflows. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.